of God's word. So Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 12. Um, sometimes we read long passages. And so, uh, you know, sometimes you just got to gotta be in it for the long haul. And you got to be ready that, uh, that, that it's going to be some tough sledding. So we're going to read. And um, so we'll start in verse 12. The scriptures say, so whatever you wish that the others would do to you, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Sometimes the text is so short, uh, and yet if we embraced its meaning and applied its truth, it would change our entire world. Let's pray. Father, we come to you, uh, and whatever is going on in our personal circumstances, there is life that can flow from this word. Uh, our interpersonal relationships with family, with children, with spouse, with those we work with, with those who we compete with in business, with those who we strive against. This word from you can transform things. And Lord, as we are able to be so incredibly connected nowadays, we can, we can have a, a missions team sit down and record a video halfway around the world and then upload it to this series of satellites and wires called the internet and and the, the video will transmit to my phone so that I can uh, send it to this computer here and it can be loaded and we can watch it as we are so incredibly connected and we can watch in exhaustive detail and read on the internet endless news about all kinds of things We're so incredibly connected. We can see all of the horrific and wonderful things that go on in the world. And we can know that this word, this truth given to us by you, can change so many things. And so, Father, we pray that you would speak to us as we turn to your word. We pray that you would rebuke, break down, destroy anything in us that we lift up and say no to you in reference to this word. We pray that you would shine the light of your beautiful sun on the seeds that are planted in our hearts, that we would grow in this, that it would become who we are built on the foundation of, of the new life that we have in Christ, and we would be, as Jesus says, sons of God in behavior. That we would live out the truth of what you've called us to. Lord, we are utterly acceptable to you because of what you've done for us in Jesus. But you call us to live in a way that changes the world. And we thank you for the simplicity of it. And so we pray that you would change shape 
us and our hearts now by your grace, for your glory, and for our joy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, there are times when, um, as a man, I hit probably my, my, my greatest struggles. Um, sometimes it causes relational tension between my wife and myself. This happens when I'm driving in unfamiliar territory. Um, I, I, don't, I don't really know how to get anywhere. Nancy will say, oh, you know, take this road and then go here and then go there. And I'm not, this is not a subtle knock on her. Like, I'll be like, what road is that? I don't know the roads. I just kind of know. I turn here. She'll say, turn it, make a right at Civic Avenue. And I'm like, which one is that? You know, I just, I don't know. I've, I've been here for a decade almost. I left New Jersey. I don't remember the names of any roads up there. She's like, oh, it's right here on this avenue. I'm like, where in relation to my house is that? Like, and, then I, and then I drive there mentally in my mind. Um, it's, it's important, right? We know this, some of us guys, right? That, that when you're driving in unfamiliar territory, in order to get to your destination, you need to first sometimes turn the radio down, right? Everyone in the car needs to be quiet for some reason. Um, I think all the noise slows down my visual processing. Um, if there's a neurologist in the room and that's not true, I'm not interested in knowing. Uh, that, that's not true. Um, so we need, to, we need to eliminate the noise and eliminate distractions and, you know, like all the signs and all the glitter and junk and activities on the side of the road just need to be, need to be um, pushed out so that we can focus on the most important things. And what are the most important things, right? If you're in New Jersey and you're driving on the Garden State Parkway, right, I, I feel bad for you. Um, <laughs> Then, then, you know, the most important thing is the, the number, 139A in the little arrow that says leave the road here. The other super important things, though, right, this isn't necessarily true on the Garden State Parkway, but on other roads, you need to pay attention to the red octagon with the white line around it. Stop, right? That's a super important sign. The other one is the, the, the white rectangle with the number in it. That tells you how fast you can drive. But all the other stuff is just noise sometimes. Unimportant, distracting. So we need to eliminate all that and focus on the most important things. Uh, the same is true, I believe, in the, the problems of our world. Uh, earlier this week, uh, somebody decided that, that in order to carry out vengeance on the sinful West, that they were going to go to a concert in England, a bunch of teeny boppers listening to bad music, and, and, and detonate a bomb. 22 people died, more were injured. Uh, some famous pop star responded and said, uh, all we need to do is drop our walls, embrace one another, and focus on love and unity. I think it's interesting that um, in the light of that, the, the, this person's GPS was love is the answer here. In the light of that, several people, uh, some who even call themselves Christians, uh, responded by tearing down and shredding that argument and saying, how dare you judge us for being 
unloving or blaming this tragedy on the West. And, and, and I think it's what, what, what strikes me as so intensely awkward and strange about this is that the response to Katy Perry, the pop star, is unloving. You know what then happens? All of her fans go to this article on the internet and respond to the guy who is angry at her with intense vehement anger. How dare you judge our hero? And then all of this guy's followers log in and start to say things. And then you just, as you're scrolling through 11,000 comments, it's degenerating to like, you're dumb, die, and things like that. We come back to the, to the root or the origin here, um, and, and we can see that there's a focus on so many things. There's a focus on, on so much nuance. Instead of boiling down and focusing on the basic principles. Now, I would admit that the answer to the problems of terrorism and, and killing are not as simple as all we need is love. We've had that, right, since the 1960s when the Beatles said it. And they broke up, right? <laughs> she's right, but she's wrong. The good news, though, is that God gives us a singular guiding principle for our lives, which, though it may not transform the lives of everyone in the world, it can truly transform the lives of all those who call themselves his followers. It can transform the lives of all of those who are in Christ, and it can become such a bright and amazing beacon of truth to the world that when lived out, will be attractive to others. This singular guiding principle is found in Matthew chapter 7, verse 12. We read it. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. This is a, a principle that since Jesus said it, 1,960 years, give or take a few, before Lennon and McCartney thought it would make a good pop song, right? Jesus said this, and it has become renowned the world over. We're going to dig into this and talk about the way that it changes the world. But, but first, remember, we're looking for, in this series of, of messages that we're doing in Matthew 7, we're looking for these right turns, these radical shifts, this is what happens when, when someone says that Jesus' command will change the world. People say, everybody knows this. This is a principle that's in every religion. It's everywhere in the world. And, and I believe that they, that they deflate or dilute or with detract from the emphasis, the center of what Jesus is, is saying here. They, they distract. What Jesus is saying is truly revolutionary. It's not what every other religion and every other teacher says. And if we get that, if we say that's what they're saying and this is what Jesus is saying, it will change the way that we live if we truly embrace it. So let me tell you a story about, about the way that this principle is 
is, is treated in other faith traditions, okay? Uh, you may know, you may have heard that there were two famous rabbis who lived before the time of Jesus, one who was uh, extremely strong and narrow in his approach to the law, and another who was kind of like, eh, you know, uh, in his approach to the law. That was my Jewish rabbi impersonation right there. Um, and so uh, Shammai and Hillel were these two rabbis. Shammai was the narrow focused one and Hillel was the perhaps more gracious one. A Gentile came to Rabbi Hillel and said, I will convert to Judaism if you can tell me the law in the time that I can stand on one leg. Tell me the essence of the law. I'm assuming that this guy was a little more wobbly um, than I am, but I can't even stand on one leg for very long. You can probably tell I need to tie my shoe. I'll do that in a minute. Um, so he goes to these two, two rabbis, and he says the same thing. He goes to Hillel, and I'll tell you what Hillel answered in just a minute. But apparently when he went to Shammai uh, and said, hey, tell me the law, Shammai picked up a stick and chased him away. Right? That is meant to be funny. If you laugh, that's good. It's apparently true. Hillel said this. This is the, the, the rule that he gives him, and I guess he gets it out before he, he has to get off his one leg. He says this. What is hateful to you, do not do to anyone else. This is the whole law. All the rest is commentary. Go and learn it. Did you feel the seismic difference between Jesus' teaching and his teaching? Or, 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 or do you think that they're the same? Maybe you do. The Jewish form goes a little bit something like this. Whatever you would not wish done to you, do not yourself do to another. The book of Tobit, which we do not regard as scripture, but his Jewish writing says this, what thou thyself hate to no man do. Confucius says this, what you do not want done to yourself, do not do to others. The Stoic philosophers said, whatever you do not wish done to you, do not do to anyone else. And Epictetus said this, who is Epictetus? He's a guy who wrote books a long time ago. We've still got them, and he's got a fancy name. What you avoid suffering yourselves, seek not to inflict on others. There's a problem here. I don't know if you feel it yet. I don't know if you see it. You got it. The problem flows in two parts. One, when people say that these two teachings are the same, they're attempting to water down the uniqueness and amazing transformativeness of Jesus' teaching, and ultimately they are not helpful statements. I believe that the devil loves to pop the balloons of Christian truth with his golden pin. He saves it just for that moment. He's like, man, they're going to they're gonna hear this truth and they're going to say, this is going to change the world. And, they, and we get it and we're like, this is amazing. And then someone comes along and says, that's truth is everywhere. Pop. We're like, man, isn't that unique? Don't fall for that. Don't. Don't fall for it. If Jesus' teaching is not unique and transformative, then it will not be effective because we'll say, eh, it's not really that amazing. Many others have said things like this. That's true, but they're just like it. They are not it. And it is amazing and different. Some scholars, maybe you've heard this as well, have gone so far to say that everything in the Sermon on the Mount is also in the Talmud, in other Jewish wisdom, plus a great deal more. 
right? Oh, there's all kinds of good stuff in Jewish history and wisdom. You know, Jesus wasn't that unique. A uh, scholar of Judaism says this, that is exactly the case. In the Talmud, where we find that story about Shammai and Hillel, and we find those statements, a great deal more is to be found. And one must seek the grain among a great deal of chaff, the scanty golden grain that may be compared with the words of the Sermon on the Mount. What he's saying there is that the whole of the Talmud has got so much stuff in it, it's got everything, the kitchen sink, there's so much junk in there that there's got to be one thing at least that's true. Some statement that compares with Jesus. Albert Edersheim, a Jew who converted to Christianity, said this, taken as a whole, the Talmud, this book of Jewish, Jewish wisdom, is not only utterly unspiritual, but it is anti-spiritual. The statement, as it reads, as formed by world religions, is not a spiritual statement, but a social statement or a legal statement. Don't do this and you will have no problems. Don't behave this way and you will be free from difficulty. It's, it's like Jesus' statement, but it is not Jesus' statement. Jesus' statement is unique. Some have said that in human ethics, this is the topmost peak. It is the Everest of ethical teaching. They state the principle in the negative. Don't do this if you don't want it done to you. Jesus says this, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Now listen, this is not some world-transforming self-help, self-actualization principle that's taught on TV by a guy who's on the Oprah show telling you how to get ahead in life. That's not what's being said here. This is not the law of attraction. Like, if you do this, then good things will happen to you. There's no guarantee there like that. This is how do you know what is good and what you ought to do? Ask yourself, do you want this done to you? Then do it. It's different. It is vastly different. It is unique. There are many attempts to attain this principle in ethical teaching. The genius of Jesus is that he said, don't wait around for the world to change around you and finally treat you the way that you deserve or think that you deserve to be treated before you do anything right. Instead, you look at the world and you say, what is it that I desire what is it that the way that i want to be treated and then go and treat people that way and then he sums it up with this amazing line he says this is the law and the prophets this is the entire sum of old testament teaching we'll talk about that in just a moment first let's talk about the limits of the negative principle the the prior principle the stating in the negative don't do to others what you don't want them to do to you is it only addresses sinful actions, but it doesn't address attitudes of reserve or withholding or emotion or perception or judgment. It doesn't address any of that stuff. The most 
narrow, judgmental, bitter, wicked person can sit in his room and in his chair and be a completely ethical person by obeying the don't do to others rule. It's utterly unspiritual. The transformation that begins with the heart addresses not just sins of commission, acts which we do, which God says, don't do that, but it addresses sins of omission, where God has called us to behave and to do certain things and to live in a certain way, and he calls us to act. The positive command says, go and do this, live this way. The golden rule addresses that which we attempt to avoid doing as well. By the way, you're going to love this. Do you know why it's called the golden rule? If you're on Pinterest, you're going to be all over this, all right? Listen, there was a Roman emperor. His name was Alexander Severus, and he was a Roman emperor from 222 to 235 AD. Not that that's ultra-relevant. I don't think there's anything ultra-significant about this guy. But listen, he was so impressed by this teaching that he had it inscribed in gold on the wall of his chamber. It's Pinterest wall art. It predates the Internet, right? (laughs) Does anybody have anything like written on the walls of their house somewhere that they bought like on a roll and it goes up on vinyl, wall art? You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Come on. Yeah, come on. Come on. He was like, he's like, get me some gold and turn it into paint and paint this on the wall of my bedroom. We'll call it wall art, right? And there was nobody there. He didn't take a selfie over his shoulder and post it on Instagram because he didn't even know what that meant, right? He couldn't do it. But, but that's why we call it the golden rule, apparently. I did not know this. Now you know it. The rule in its negative form is a legal rule. It's a common sense rule, not a religious one. It doesn't change anyone. Saying, I must do no harm to anyone is vastly different from the heart that says, I must do my best to help and to love people. So this is what Jesus is doing here. He's summing everything up, and he's saying to us, this is the essence of the sermon. Notice how he begins. So whatever you wish, he says, so. This is a summing up. He has capped off his teaching with the need for prayer, and now he says, so. And so he's driving everything to a conclusion. Recall the first reference to all the law and the prophets in the beginning of the sermon. You can flip back to Matthew 5 and look at verse 17 through 20. I'm not going to read everything in there, but he says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven because the law, the moral will of God for his people is very important to God. Whoever does them, he says, and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And then he says this, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, there are two ways in which that greater righteousness needs to enter into our lives. We can't just be religiously righteous saying, these are the rules that I live by, and if I obey them, then I will be acceptable to God. No, we need the very righteousness of Christ who goes to the cross and takes our sins. We put our faith in him, and God gives us his righteousness, and that makes us acceptable in the sight of God. That's what we know from the book of of Romans and other books. That's the gospel. But listen, the greater righteousness is also this. 
Not that we say, I've done no harm. I've not hurt anybody. But instead that we say, I must help everyone the way that I desire to be helped and loved. I must love the way I desire to be loved. That is, is good. It, it moves us. It's understanding the spirit of the law is not saying there are 633 commandments and I need to have one list that I need to go back and I need to say, did I do this today? If I didn't do it, I'm good. And then I need to say, oh, you know, did I observe this? Did I wash? Did I pray? Did I this? Did I that? Did I blah, 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 blah. Now I'm righteous. No. That's nonsense, Jesus is saying. That's focusing on the letter, but focusing on the spirit, saying yes to the spirit says, I must do my best to help others. Jesus says this is a summary of the whole Old Testament. The whole Old Testament's right there. The law and the prophets, really? Yes. Exodus 23, 4 says what? If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, praise God, free donkey, right? No, if you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. My enemy, I got a donkey. No one will notice if I knock it into a ditch, right? Cover it. Paint it, you know. No, that's my donkey, look, you know. No, we go back. Why? Because that's what we'd want them to do if they found our donkey. And that's how we know it's the right thing to do. Leviticus 19.18, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you will love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Proverbs 24.17, do not rejoice when your enemy falls. Let not your heart be glad when he stumbles. When you walk in and you suddenly trip and you're like, did anyone see that? My friend John in high school, he always used to say, we'll have that fixed. Was, he's like, fix that. Um, you look around and you look to see if there are people, right? And, and, and okay, you didn't trip, you didn't smash your face, but you feel a little goofy and you look and you see no one's laughing at me and your world is okay. But when you see people like, ha, 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 you're like, my feelings hurt. It's utterly, completely, and totally wrong. We want people not to laugh at us. I occasionally, I will say to somebody when they trip, I'll say, I didn't see that, you know. And then, I don't know, they go on with their life. <laughs> Proverbs 25, 21 says this, if your enemy is hungry, what, laugh at him. Take joy in the fact that they are starving. No, give him bread to eat. And if he's thirsty, give him water to drink. Why? Because that's the way that we would want to be treated when we were hungry or thirsty. Luke 6.31, and as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. Jesus is saying this, in the light of all that I've said in this sermon, obey this rule for it is the center of everything. It encompasses all of the way that we are to live as humans towards our fellow human. Now, lest anyone doubt, let me say this. The way that we love our fellow humans is a measure of our love towards God. What does John say in his letter? He says, if anyone says, I love God, but he hates his brother, how can the love of God be in him? 
How, how can someone say that he loves God who he's never seen and yet he doesn't love his brother who he has seen? Right? We went from preaching to meddling here. Romans 13 says that to love others is our focus, it is our debt, it is our obligation, and it is the full expression of everything that we're called to live out as Christians. Romans 13.8, owe no one anything except to love one another. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Did you hear that? Fulfilled the law. Man, I don't know if you've read the law, but there's 600 plus commands in there. It is complicated. You can give me 600 plus rules to follow in order to be righteous, and I'm going to mess it up. But man, you give me one, I'll take the one. That doesn't mean it's easy, but it is a whole lot less complicated. All the commandments. You shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment, they're summed up in this word. This is Paul, this is scripture here. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. One scholar says this is a powerful and flexible rule that helps us decide moral issues in a thousand cases without the need for multiplied case law. Listen to what Martin Luther said. All the teaching of these chapters here, Jesus ties up in a little bit of a bundle. I love that, right? It's like he just he takes the whole law and he wraps it up and he gives it to you in a little basket like it were some breadsticks at Olive Garden. You know, here you go. This is for you. Thank you. Thank you. What is this? A little bundle, he says, that everyone might carry close to his heart. And certainly it is a fine thing that Christ sets before us precisely as an example. He says this, thou art, thou thyself art your master, doctor, and preacher. What does that mean? Master, doctor, and preacher. He's saying that, that you know what feels and doesn't feel loving to you. You know when you are stepping outside of this commandment. You know when you need to rebuke yourself and correct yourself. Because you know what is loving and what is not loving. And so Jesus has given us the whole of the law and put it in a nice little package for us. Thank you, Martin Luther. Society's greatest need, I believe, is an ethical system rooted in a simple command that is instructive. We've had it for 2,000 years. We just need to unpack it and deploy it. The difficulty and struggle with it going worldwide is that it requires a new birth that opens us up to the purifying power of the love of God, which is his greatest gift to us. And so, as Christians, we have been empowered by the Holy Spirit with the capability of living this out. And so, what we need is a heart driven and guided by this command in order to walk in a manner pleasing to the Lord. But think about that. What we need to do on a daily basis in order to be acceptable before God, we are in Christ, we put our faith and trust in him, then we just need on a regular basis to say, am I treating others the way I desire to be treated? 
We need the Holy Spirit to empower us, yes. We need help to, to discern. We need a community around us to help us correct course. We need to be open to the scriptures in order to be instructed and taught on the nature of what love is. And we need to be willing to repent and to try, try again. But this rule is the center of everything. That is incredibly helpful. And so it's not enough to study the Bible and to know it. We need to embrace it. We need to own it. What is Jesus saying here to his church? He's saying this first, I believe, not sinning is not enough. We need to take action. We might just say, well, you know, as far as I can tell, I didn't sin today. I think I'm okay. No, we need to, we need to take positive steps. Think about this. If you know the passage in Matthew 25 about the goats, they would be acquitted under the world's form of the rule, but not under Jesus' form. Matthew 25 says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he'll sit on his glorious throne. He's going to gather everyone. He's going to put the sheep on the right. It's my right. And the goats on the left. And he's going to... uh, judge them he'll say to those on his right come you who are blessed by my father inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world why for i was hungry and you gave me food thirsty you gave me drink i was a stranger and you welcomed me i was naked and you clothed me i was sick and you visited me i was in prison and you came to me and the righteous are going to say lord when did we see you and do these things we'd have known you're jesus right when you show up you're wearing white you've got the red robe you've got the brown hair you've got the beard we'd know if it was you we never saw you and he says when you did these things to the least of me of of my brothers you did it to me And then he says to those on his left, depart from me. Why? Because they never loved. They never acted on the way that they would desire to be treated in that situation. We need to act. The good news about this scripture is it points us, it points out our need for the gospel. It shows us our intense and great need. The world, its pride, its system of honor says we ought to treat others as they have treated us. We return a kindness and we revenge an injury. Jesus says that we ought to treat others in every situation as they, as we desire to be treated. We, when we're wrong, desire forgiveness. We desire grace. We desire that someone be tolerant of us, that they forgive our failings, that they endure our difficulties. They, we want them to make the best of the past. We want them to hope for the best in the future. And so Jesus says, then go and do that to others. The rule is simple, but carrying out means that we need to have a heart of sympathy. We need to break free from our focus on self, and we then need to use our imagination and say, if I were in this situation, what would I want someone to do to me? It takes some processing 
time. That means we need to slow down and resist the, the inertia of our culture. Our culture moves at breakneck speed, right? We hardly process anything. We react to everything. Our media and culture go straight to Facebook Live, and we're, we're, we're announcing conclusions and judgments before we even have all the facts. We've become the generation of the witty comeback, the one-liner, the quick and sharp response, when instead what we ought to do is slow down and say, how would I want to be treated right here? That's tough stuff. We need to slow down and say, I have a need here. The good news, though, is that God's character meets us with this exact behavior, and so we can use him as a model. Maybe you're feeling a little uncompassionate in a situation in your life. You're feeling a little burnt out somewhere. You're feeling kind of just worn out. The love of God finds us at this point. The Bible says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were God's enemies, while we had nothing going for us, nothing good was going on in our lives, there was nothing redeemable about us, God said, I choose to forgive you. Luke chapter 7 A Pharisee invites Jesus to his house. He goes and he's at the table. And a woman of the city, that's a code word. She was a sinner. When she learned that he was at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought a flask of ointment and she came into that room. She stood behind him at his feet because they were reclining. She was weeping. She began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head and anoint them with the oil. And the Pharisees looked and they saw that. And, they, and then the Pharisee said, if this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman she was. And he would say, get away from me, you disgusting, sinful, wretched, rotten thing. That's the Keith translation. That's not actually in the Bible. Jesus answering, it's interesting, he doesn't say this out loud. Jesus answers and says, Simon, Mr. Pharisee, I have something to say to you. The man says, say it, teacher. Jesus tells this story. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owned owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more. The Pharisee answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he had canceled the larger debt. Jesus said, you're right. Then turning to the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I love love that, that line. It's like, do you see that this is a human being? Do you actually... Have you taken stock of this person? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her feet, wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. 
one of the ways in which we grow in our understanding and application of this concept in our lives is that we acknowledge our own sinfulness. Now, we meet our acknowledging of our own sinfulness with an awareness of God's abundant love towards us because if we only focus on our sinfulness, we would want to die from shame at how wicked and horrible we are. And so we need the love of God to sustain us as we consider our own sinfulness. But when we understand the love of God towards us in the way that he has treated us, we are then able to treat others in the way that he treats us. That's the way that we desire to be treated, and so we ought to treat others the same way. We can't ever live this way until we acknowledge the reality of the gospel and self dies in our hearts. And so we need to put the selfish, self-focused self to death and fan the new self into life through prayer and obedience and abiding in the goodness of what God has done for us. Now look, on the other side of this is the ability to please God. This is what Jesus says about the woman. He says, therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. She loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Those who were at the table began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. What is he telling her to do? She is forgiven. Go keep loving. Amen. Love others. Love. The good news is that God doesn't just create a Christian and throw him out in the world and say, go and do this. We are in community together. We can help each other live this way. Imagine what it would look like what if we worked together? What if, if we lived this out, if we committed to it? I believe that the world would take notice. Because you know what the world sees? They see an entire culture, the entire West, tripping over each other, commenting, calling each other names, splitting into blue and red or white and black or male and female. Everybody's on one side of an issue, nuancing each other to death. But if the church were to achieve unity in this area and say, you know what, we are going to love each other and encourage each other, live out the commands by putting our arms around one another and saying, I am for you, the world would take notice. Do you know why? Because that is what the world is deeply hungering for. When somebody speaks up and says, don't judge that person, you don't know what they've been through, I believe that what they're saying is, you would judge me if you had the opportunity. You would judge me. When somebody says, that person should have done this or that, what they're saying is, but love sometimes has to correct. But we're doing this as disembodied humans on the internet so often, or we're talking about stories that are happening in cities far away from us and not talking about what's going on in our own home or our own church or our own marriage or our own relationships with our kids or our own relationships with our coworkers or schoolmates or classmates. And what we need to do is to focus on the local if we want to transform the global. 
if we commit to treating others the way we desire to be treated because that's the center of the law and the prophets, we will speak to the heart need of our world. That's how we reach our culture. You know what our culture turns up its nose at and sneers at? Inauthentic hypocrisy. But I believe our culture is craving genuine, authentic, true relationships built on love. Love that, that is solid and that sticks together, that is full of honest talk, true fellowship, and not fear. And so we will truly reflect the heart of Jesus' kingdom if we live this out. If we believe, as it has been taught in this passage, the Sermon on the Mount, that fellow Christians are truly our brothers and sisters in the Lord, then it's inconceivable that we should be anything other than caring and constructive in our attitude towards them. God is our Father. Christians are our brothers and sisters. The remainder of our family is still outside in desperate need of awareness of the gospel so that they can enter in, they can choose to live for Christ. And so the golden rule is the guide for our behavior in each and every situation. I believe that the world should look around and look and find the truly tolerant people in the church. Those who are truly tolerant, not who say we look past every bit of behavior and accept you and, and never correct you ever, ever, ever. But instead, we're not fighting and, 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 and churning and boiling on all those issues that society and the news say be upset about this. The true tr church should be a place where, where those who are of different colors can join together and it's not a massive problem where red and blue can dwell together and understand that the news makes money when we fight and we split and we divide over all of the issues of the day where, where they say today fight about this and we do. where male and female can look at one another and say, we don't have to be at war, where the needy and the wealthy can get along, where we are ruled by love. And therefore, because we are ruled by love, we are patient and kind, and we're not envious of each other, and we don't fill our time and our talking with boasting, and we're not arrogant towards one another, and there isn't rudeness, and we're not forcing our own way. Here's where I trip. We're not irritable. We're not resentful. We don't rejoice at wrongdoing. Instead, we rejoice with the truth. We bear all things, believe all things, hope all things, and endure all things, and our love does not come to an end. Think about what would happen if we said, I am going to make this rule the guide in all of my actions towards everyone I interact with in this church family, and I will repent when I don't. Imagine the fire that it would light in our community. I believe it could ignite the whole world. And so let's make this the rule and guide of our lives, that we treat others in the way that we desire to be treated. Think about what Jesus said. That fulfills the law and the prophets. 
It's all that God is going for in giving us all the commands of the Old Testament. As we draw to a close, I'm going I'm to pray. I want to urge you, if you've not put your faith and trust in Jesus for the cleansing of your sins, to do that. To put your faith and trust in him. Ethics flow from redemption, not vice versa. We cannot obey this commandment without Christ, and we cannot earn Christ by obeying this commandment. We receive salvation by belief. That's how justification comes. And so if you've not committed your life to Christ, let me urge you to pray to receive him. We're going to pray in just a moment. And then as we sing the closing song, if you wanted to come and talk more about that, you can feel free to come up and talk to me. Or if you want prayer for any other thing, feel free to come forward. But would you commit to the ethical standard of living out a life of love based on this rule. But this is the center. This is the most important thing, as Jesus has said, that rules all of our behavior as we interact with others. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for your grace and kindness toward us. We thank you for your love, which is the foundation of our love. Your love for us leads and guides in our love for others. Father, we pray that as you have given us this rule to measure our lives by, that we would resist the desire to overcomplicate it, that we wouldn't say it can't be that simple, but instead we would say you are good for giving us this rule and we will build our lives on that foundation. We pray, Father, that, that you would help us to humble ourselves. What an intense difficulty to, to rule and to reign over this thing called the flesh. Instead, we pray that you would enable us to live by the power of your spirit as we humble ourselves before you. And that we would seek in every interaction, help us to start slow and grow. Help us to crawl before we walk and then to walk before we run as we seek to live in this commandment. But may we be those who are marked by lives guided by love. It's not just a throwaway line by a celebrity. It's the very heart of what you are attempting to achieve in the law. And we believe this is how your kingdom will be built and ruled. We pray your grace on our lives, Lord, as we seek to honor you in our behavior. If there's anyone here, Lord, this morning who's not put their faith and trust in you, I pray that they would look to you for the forgiveness of, your sin, of their sins. You have given us, Jesus, a perfect righteous Savior that we might be right before you. We thank you for your grace and kindness toward us. We pray your grace on the remainder of our day and on the remainder of our worship. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing a closing song together.